we are set to go. the opening music to Mrs. Miniver, released by MGM in 1942. And I'm Matt Johnson, recording from Seattle, where we're having pale rain, sunny skies, and potential thunder later, so another typical spring day. And I'm Bob Johnson here in Los Angeles, where we're having nice weather, a little overcast, and... Uh, the tomatoes are in bloom. We have two plants on the patio. We've had a thousand tomatoes from them. They're little cherry tomatoes. It's great. So you can uh, hear us on uh, iTunes by uh, looking for classic movie reviews and uh, click on that and you'll get the full uh, list of episodes. This is number 41, right? And you can also find us on our website, which is classic, uh, www.classicmoviereviews.net. And uh, you can hear us there. And you can also find us on Facebook by looking for Classic Movie Reviews. We have everything going now except Twitter. Yeah, we probably don't want to start that up. <laughs> <laughs> we have enough. We have, have enough, enough of, uh, things to manage as it is. Uh, a little bit of background on this movie, uh, which is one of my favorites. It's in the top ten. It was released June 4th of 1942, and it was made basically in 1941 and early 1942. And at that point in the war, things weren't going all that well for the Allies. And uh, I thought that... Uh, it was a very uplifting and positive uh, kind of a movie in, in, in a, as, a, as a war movie can go, especially with the ending. But nobody making it had any idea how it was going to go as far as the war, which really uh, so early in the uh, conflict. Yeah, I read that William Wyler, he directed the movie knowing that it was going to be sort of like a propaganda movie. And at the time, the United States was not involved in the war uh, when it was being filmed, I believe. And one of the things that he was hopeful of doing was getting people in the United States more aware of how bad it was in Great Britain. And I think that, that it was successful in that respect. It certainly was. William Wyler has done so many movies. His career started in 1925, and he made his last movie in 1970. And the list of movies that he's made is amazing. Let me just mention four. Dodsworth, which was made in 1936, excellent movie. Wuthering Heights in 1939. The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946, which again is a movie about the end of the war and the effect it had on three service people coming home from the war in 1945, 1946. And then in 1959... Ben-Hur, and I don't know how many movies, I forgot to count how many movies he made, but it had to be probably a hundred. I what think a, we've got to put talent. him up in the top list of our 
best directors. This whole movie, to me, was sort of a master class in directing and acting and set design, and just, just everything about it was top-notch. Just as an example, uh, the scene where Vin Miniver gets a phone call and he has to leave early. This is right after he's asked uh, Carol to marry him. And Carol and uh, Mrs. Miniver are standing at the bottom of the stairway and Vin runs up to his room to grab his bag. It's a shot from behind and you see the back of Carol and Mrs. Miniver. There's just this empty space at the top of the stairs where Vin had been just a second ago. And that ability to convey that sense of loss just by the fact that he's not in the shot there's there's many examples of that in this movie for another example is at the end when the minister is talking about the people that they've lost and they cut to a scene of all the choir boys and there's one spot that's empty because one of the choir boys had been killed it's just so powerful and so amazingly well directed Oh, I could watch it ten more times, probably. We could do a couple more of his movies, and we'd—I think—we'd find, for example, if we did the best years of our lives, it's this—it's the same perfection, and the music just adds to the beauty of the film, both Mrs. Miniver and the best years of our lives. So he would be in the top. So we're going to talk about our top favorite scenes. We each have about ten, and I'm sure, and I'm sure we've got quite a few that overlap. So the. First scene that I wanted to talk about was uh, when Mrs. Miniver gets uh, a, a rose named after her by uh, Mr. Ballard. She's so genuinely pleased by that. Oh, Mr. Ballard. It's my masterpiece. How lovely. You like it, ma'am? I think it's the most beautiful rose I've ever seen. They said, as Cupid danced among the gods, he down the nectar flung, which on the white rose being shed, made it forever after red. Had a seed catalog, ma'am. It's pretty, but it ain't true. What goes to make a rose, ma'am, is breeding and budding and horse manure, if you'll pardon the expression. And that's where you come in, ma'am. I gotta have a name for it. Oh, oh, you want me to name it for you? No, man, I got a name for it. If you'll give me your permission. Why, of course. But I, uh, I, I don't see I want to the... call it the Mrs. Miniver. Oh. If you'll pardon me, ma'am, I've watched you go in and out of town for years now, and you, you've always had time to stop and have a word with me, and I've always waited for you to come home and and you remind me of the flower. And I think it would be a very good name for my rose. It's a lovely compliment, Mr. Ballard. I'd be very happy indeed to have you name your rose after me. Oh. And Mr. Ballard, I, I thought he was great. Uh, Henry, uh, Henry Travers did such a good job of kind of portraying that older gentleman that's been around forever, but... You know, his passion is, is, is growing these roses, but he's also the 
train master and the bell ringer and uh, i just thought that was a very sweet scene i totally agree uh my favorite kind of reinforces that it's the beginning of the film where it portrays the normality of their life she's bought a hat is afraid to tell clem oh, oh i was so afraid you'd sold it no we knew you'd come back <laughs> I know it's foolish and extravagant. I don't know what my husband will say, but I simply got to have it. Yes, pack it up quickly. Don't give me time to think. I might change my mind. Oh, careful, careful. He's thinking about getting another car. Uh, it's a nice car, but uh, afraid it's a little more than I can afford. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. Because we have some nice cars in the cheaper brackets. I like this one. <laughs> well, I'm going to take it. Uh, Perhaps you'd better take it over. Oh, I'm going to take it. You bring it around tonight after dinner? Very good, sir. And whatever you do, don't let my wife know how much it cost. <laughs> the rose scene, all of that, it's like, it's a, it's a perfect job of, of describing what it was like before uh, the bombardment of, of uh, London and the suburbs started. So that I agree with you on that one. So uh, my next favorite scene, if, I, if I'm jumping ahead too far, Matt, just let me know, is when their son, Vin, comes back from Oxford and he, he just is so proud of how well he's done and he kind of makes fun of the, uh, the, the Belden's granddaughter, uh, played by Teresa Wright. I think her name is Carol Belden. And he's kind of poking fun at the uh, the royalty and the richness of, of their life. You really must excuse me for invading your house like this, but frankly, I've come to make a request. A personal request, and it's a great favor. Well, please, sit down. Well, thank you. You see, my grandmother doesn't know I've come. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not very good at breaking things gently, so... I'll get straight to the point. It's about the rose. The rose? Yes, the one Mr. Ballard grew, the Mrs. Miniver. You see, I hear that he's going to enter it in the flower show. You mean for the Belden Challenge Cup? Yes. But uh, no one ever has entered, uh, I mean, no. that is... Uh... No one has ever entered a rose in competition like grandmother before. And that's just the point. It's become a tradition for her to win the cup, and her roses mean so much to her. I know it seems an awful thing to ask, but I thought you might, perhaps, as a favor, persuade Mr. Ballard to withdraw his rose from the competition. You see, to be frank, it's such a beautiful rose, it might easily win, and, well... Miss Belden, <clears throat> may I ask whether this is an open competition? Yes, technically... Technically, it... yes, but actually, no. Yes, I suppose that's it, you see. Oh, I see only too well, Miss Belden. Because Mr. Ballard is not of the ruling class, is a mere vassal, as it were. Now, Vin, please, let Miss Belden explain. But Mother Miss Belden doesn't have to explain, not to me. I'm aware of the influence of the feudal system in this village. These are orders from the manor. Her ladyship must be offered no competition. Miss Belden, you must excuse my son. He's just down from Oxford. Oh, don't apologize for me. I mean everything I say. Well, I'm glad to hear it. But do you do anything about it? Do? I don't... What do you mean? If you feel something is wrong, what are you doing about it? 
I've spent most of my holidays these last few years doing settlement work in the slums of London. Oh, you wallow in luxury all I the don't year. I wallow. I think a few weeks playing the Lady Bountiful. Oh, Shh, Come, Ben. Well, it's not much, perhaps, but it's the only thing I know. What have you been doing? I? I, I... I see. Just talk. Well, that's all right. It's easy. Listen, I didn't say well, anything don't about... don't apologize. I know how comfortable it is to curl up with a nice fat book full of big words and think you're going to solve all the problems of the universe. But you're not, you know. A bit of action is required now and then. Action? Well, if that's what you and your class are asking for, maybe you'll get it one of these days. Maybe. Not from the talkers. Ben, remember, Miss Belden is a guest here now. If you have any manners at all... Manners are everything, aren't they? A humble working man is denied the reward of his artistry to gratify the overweening vanity of an aristocrat. Be quiet, Ben. This is no concern of yours. I beg to differ, Father. I'm concerned for a fellow man, for his dignity, and the indignity that's heaped upon him. <laughs> You'll excuse me, I'm sure, Miss Belden. Certainly. Uh, boy... What a, what a, uh, that probably said a lot about how people felt about the uh, monarchy. That was my next favorite scene as well. And it, what, it ties into the end of the movie because he's so full of himself when he's uh, talking to, uh, uh, or talking about Lady Belden. And then Carol Belden, her granddaughter, walks in. And that banter between Carol and Vin is so great. And Carol just puts him in his place so fast. <laughs> but you're right, it does tie into the final part of the movie. Ties into the very last scene where uh, Vin goes to stand next to Lady Belden, I thought. And it shows sort of how, regardless of their station, the war has basically equalized everything and brought them together. What was your next favorite? The scene where the pastor announces, or the minister announces that England is at war, and he gives two really powerful speeches. The first one is, is in this scene. Will everyone please be seated? It has just been announced over the air by the Prime Minister that our country is at war. In the circumstances, I don't think you'll wish me to continue with this service, as you'll probably, most of you, have some other duty to perform. I will say simply this, that the prayer for peace still lives in our hearts, coupled now with the prayer for our beloved country. We in this village have not failed in the past. Our forefathers for a thousand years have fought for the freedom that we now enjoy and that we must now defend again. With God's help and their example, we cannot and shall not fail. And then the last one, which apparently is an incredibly well-known and famous uh, speech called the Wilcoxian speech. That, that actor was tremendous. I want to just interject quickly that our lead cast was Greer Garson as Kay Miniver, Walter Pigeon as Clem Miniver, Teresa Wright as Carol Belden, and Dame w uh, May Whitty as Lady Belden, plus many more. And the movie won six Academy Awards. This isn't a bad year for them. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and two other Academy Awards. And it was a big f success financially. 
uh, Greer Garson gave a five and a half minute acceptance speech at the Academy Awards that year. And I, I think it's one of the longest uh, acceptance speeches ever. Uh, there's a there's a scene from a newsreel on the Blu-ray, and I watched it, and uh, she's just as well-spoken and uh, commanding of a presence in that newsreel as she was in the movie. She's she's pretty amazing. I want to watch some more movies with oh, her. Oh, she was a, a, she's a wonderful talent. Just a classy doesn't doesn't really capture it, but she was totally sophisticated. This this isn't really a favorite scene, but I just want to make sure that I mention that if you, again, along the lines of the directing, but if you watch the acting, Greer Garson and Walter Pidgeon, and actually all the actors in the movie, could say a hundred words with just the look on I their know. face, or the movement of their head, or the position of their body. It was... I know that's a combination of the actor and the director and, and and a lot of other, you know, circumstances lead up to that, but it's just so well done. It's amazing. The, uh, I guess the next scene for me is when the, the, the staff person's husband goes off to uh, serve in the military and then their son, and then uh, the, the Miniver's son, Vin says he's enlisted and he's, going to be in the Royal Air Force. I beg pardon, Mum, but would you tell Gladys that Oris has got to catch his train and he says, could he come in a minute and say goodbye? Oh, of course he can. Come in, Horace. Thank you, sir. Morning, Mum. Morning, everybody. Good morning, Horace. Will you have a sherry? Don't mind if I do. Help yourself right there. And jolly good luck to you, Horace. Yes, indeed, Horace. Jolly good luck, Horace. Thanks, Master Toby. You're very good help. Uh, my best respects, Mum. Thank you, Horace. The children are going to miss you terribly. And poor Gladys. Oh, she'll be all right, Mum, won't you, Glad? <laughs> dear, dear, that's not the way to behave. How do you expect me to behave when you leave me and go off and get killed? Well, cheer up. I ain't killed yet. Here, have a drop of this. You don't mind, sir? Oh, sir. No, go on, Gladys. Ah, there, that's better. Uh, have one for yourself now, Horace. Thank you. You'll want Gladys to see you to the station, won't you? Oh, thank you, Mum. Oh, so we're going to get your hat. Come on, oh, Come on. Thank you. Very nice drop of stuff, Miss. Last I shall get for a bit, I expect. Yeah, make a lot of difference to a lot of people, this war will. Yeah, a lot of difference. We may all meet in the front line yet. Not me, Horace. The RAF for me. Hmm. Oh, boy! I've always been keen on flying. Yes, that's all right, too. Well, i got to get to me train. I'll say goodbye, Mum. Yes, of course, Horace. Goodbye and the very best of luck. Thank you, Mum. Goodbye, Horace. You'll let us know how things are going. I will, sir, but you'll have to excuse the spelling. I'm better with a bayonet than what I am with a pencil, I am. You can write it in blood. A nice child you have. Good luck, Horace. Keep your chin up. Thank you. That that whole thing, now we're sort of transitioning from the normality of the life to what's uh, about to happen. And the look on Mrs. Mitt, you know, her, his mom's face is sort of a, a mixture of pride, fear, disbelief. It, it's just, it's just, again, another amazing scene for the acting. That's, that's one of my favorites as well. What I noticed about this film 
the script is perfect. The cinematography is perfect. The uh, production values are per- I mean, everything about it is perfection. And I really love the way the script tells so much about what was going on in the 40s with the war, beyond just the Miniverse. And Winston Churchill said that uh, K. Miniver was worth a, a fleet of destroyers in terms of how well it how well she promoted morale and, and built that up. Because again, it came out in the summer of 1942 when, when the uh, Allies were not doing all that well. What's your next favorite? I like the journey that Mrs. Belden goes on. Uh, and to kind of illustrate that, when there's the first air raid siren happening, uh, Mrs. Belden has a great speech. We can take care of ourselves. We've been doing it for the last 800 years. But Lady Belden, we I don't, don't want... take orders, we give them. The worst thing about this war is the chance it gives these dreadful little persons to make themselves important. Air raids, indeed. Those wretched Germans, they wouldn't dare. What should we do? Do? Nothing. Probably Foley giving a false alarm. No, Lady Bellman, you can't take that attitude. I beg your pardon, young man. There may be danger and you must take precautions. Ring for the butler and ask him to gather the servants together in the cellar. Then get down there yourself. Quickly. I? I must call my parents. Where's the telephone? It's in the hall. Well, upon my word. Sirens, my lady. I'm not deaf. Get all the servants quickly into the cellar. You too, Granny. He said so. The class system needs to be reinforced, and who do, who are these people that think they can just do whatever they want? And and there's a that that's a scene that really helps to illustrate that because between that scene and then the scene with the rose uh, competition, and then the very end, she she goes on a really nice character yes. arc that that I'd like to kind of make sure we talk about. Uh, I like that speech that she had. I, I was watching her and, and, and how she uh, changed through the movie. And I got to thinking to myself, I wonder if she knew the family at Downton Abbey and Lord Grantham. Because <laughs> they're all from the same period when you think about the later uh, episodes of Downton Abbey. <laughs> so I made that connection. But I also liked when she opened up her house, or not house, her mansion, for people to come in. And all the yeah. little kids, she yeah. had. She was housing a lot of the little kids because she had really well-reinforced cellars. Um, what's your next favorite scene? Well, I tell you, it's hard to narrow it down. There's so many. Every scene in this movie is my favorite. Makes it kind of hard. Yeah, I, I guess my next one is when Clem uh, Miniver is called to contribute his boat to the flotilla of hundreds and hundreds yes, of boats. that was amazing. And, and the picture of them all going down the river out into the... Uh, Unknown. Of the English Channel to go over to Dunkirk and rescue, I think it was 350,000 British and French soldiers. And uh, that whole scope of that was was a show of bravery
And then also when he comes back home, that boat looks like they might as well just use it for firewood. It's <laughs> it's really taken a beating. I mean, Kay says, "Are you okay? Are you all right?" And he goes, "I'm fine, but the boat's not." <laughs> it, was, it was it was totally wrecked. But the scene of all those little boats and bigger boats going out. Well, it starts off with like his boat, and then there's a few more boats that they meet up with, and then there's maybe a dozen boats. And then there's about 50 boats. And then pretty soon there's got to be over 100 boats. And by the end of it, it's amazing that any of them can float because the whole chant, the whole river is full of these little boats. And they get out into the channel and they're led across to uh, Dunkirk by a destroyer, a, a, a naval ship of the Royal Navy. And they had no clue what was going to happen. They had no armaments or anything. You never see him, but the captain of the destroyer talks to them about what they need to do. Attention, please. Attention, everyone. Attention, please. Switch off your engines. As you know, the British Expeditionary Force is trapped between the enemy and the sea. 400,000 men are crowded on the beaches under bombardment from artillery and planes. Their only chance to escape annihilation rests with you. Your destination is Dunkirk. It's my duty to tell you that the effort is not without risk. You're asked to cross 40 miles of open sea, many of you in small boats that are far from seaworthy. Shore guns and enemy aircraft are going to make it hot for you. Any of you who wish to withdraw may do so now. Very good. We'll put to sea at once. Smaller boats without compasses will endeavor to follow in the wake of larger ships at the head of the line. Every moment counts. Good luck to you. All right, Monsieur Lobby? Aye, sir. Turn them over. This was probably one of the most powerful scenes for me. They spend about an hour before that scene kind of setting up the normal life of the family. And so when Mr. Miniver's called out at 2.30 in the morning to take his boat on the river, uh, and then we find out that he has to cross the channel to rescue these stranded soldiers, it really gave me a sense of what he must have been feeling and thinking at that moment. It it was just a a very real moment in the movie for me, uh, which kind of was also strange to me because I know that it's just a movie and it, and they're kind of an idealized family, but it just it works. Does. It's like, it, it's so well put together that I totally bought into it. And, and don't you think that along with Greer Garson, that Walter Pidgeon was perfect for that role? I mean, he was, he was the every man who was an architect. He was very successful, but he was also a patriot and he had no qualms about taking his little boat out into the English channel and, not only that, but when he got back, he said, I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And then he goes to bed and he just basically collapsed for hours and hours. 
could hardly get into bed. So that's my next favorite scene. So he wakes up and he's like, is it breakfast time? And, and she's like, uh, you've slept for 10 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then they start having this funny banter back and forth. Hello, Ada. Well, I am glad to see you, sir. Thank you. After what it said in the papers, I was quite worried about you. Really, I was. Well, it's very nice of you, Ada, but I'm all right. And all I need now is a good large plate of ham and eggs. <laughs> all right, sir. Uh, then it uh, is in the papers. About Dunkirk? Yes. Yes, dear. Thank heavens. I shan't have to tell you about it. Kim, I'm so proud of you. Are you, darling? Well, that's nice. And, uh, come to think of it, I'm uh, a bit proud of myself. What you might call a real bit of navigation. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Oh, darling, I'm almost sorry for you having such a nice, quiet, peaceful time when things were really happening. But that's what men are for, isn't it? To go out and do things while you women folk look after the house. Yes, dear. Come in. I'm sorry, Mum, but I just remembered we ain't got any ham. What? You'd give it all to that German pilot. Oh, well, um, well, never mind, Ada. We've got some bacon in the house. Mr. Miniver likes that just as well. All right, Mum. What's all that about a German pilot? Oh, nothing, dear. Nothing at all. What do you mean, nothing at all? Well, I just had a German pilot in for ham and eggs this morning, that's all. What? Wait, say, what's going on here? Now, Ken, don't get excited. I'm just going to draw your bath. I've had a bath and I'm not excited. Well, uh, have a cigarette? No, I don't want a cigarette. Was it the fellow we were looking for? Yes. But, but what did you do? A, a woman here driving me crazy. Didn't he have a gun? We already had a gun. Well... I just took it away from him and called the police. Oh, you just took it to the police and... Oh, uh -huh. just like that. And then I suppose you gave him tea. Milk. <gasps> Milk. Tim! Then he smacks her in the bottom, kind of playfully. And that was, seems like such a real scene to me, like two happily married yep. people, you yep. know. And and what happened while he was out uh, crossing the channel is this German uh, flyer, a, a, a fighter pilot, crashed and he came into the Miniver's home. He'd been wounded, but he was able to come in and order K. Miniver around. He had a gun. I think it was helmet Dantine played the German, and he just was was so much wrapped up in how the Germans were going to win, and she tried to help him, and he, he refused that. And Leonard's it's much better this way. Really, it is. You'll be wonderfully looked after in a hospital. You'll be safe there. And the war won't last forever. No. Soon we finish it. I'm finished, but others come. Like me. Thousands. Many thousands. Better. For all this, you will see. You will see. We will come. We will bomb your cities. Like Barcelona, Warsaw, Narvik, Rotterdam. Rotterdam we destroy in two hours. There's thousands killed. Innocent. Not innocent. 
They were against us. Women and children. 30,000 in two hours. And we will do the same thing here. She she was as strong as as Clem. The actor that played that German flyer, Helmut Dantin, he was born in Austria, and kind of made a name for himself playing these uh, German villains. But he was a really staunch anti-Nazi, anti-fascist uh, person. So he he would play sort of the German villains in films, even though he was really against uh, Nazism and fascism. There was another actor, and I can't think of his name right now, but he plays the German colonel in uh, Casablanca. He's the he's the arch villain, and he was likewise a total anti-Nazi uh, person. But he played these roles. Well, first of all, it was work, and secondly, it was really good at it. I wish I could remember his name right now. It'll come to me later. So anyway, that, 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 that's another favorite scene is when she has the drama of being in her kitchen with this German flyer who's got a gun and how she calmly kind of manages the situation. And then when she takes that gun, that pistol, that Luger, she just you could tell she just wanted to blow it up. She hated it. I, that was weird because at first I thought she was going to hide it and keep it as a like a souvenir, um, but then she handed it over to the police. And but that but there was this moment, and I couldn't quite figure out what was going through her head. But she hid it behind her dress, like behind her back. It was it was an interesting little moment there. Uh, my next favorite one comes when uh, Lady Belden uh, comes in to express her disapproval with uh, Vin asking Carol to marry him. Oh, yes. This is, again, this is part of that uh, character art with with her because uh, she goes into quite a bit of detail about how she doesn't want this marriage to happen, but then Mrs. Miniver, in her way that she has in this movie, turns it around on Mrs. Belden. I'm old-fashioned, I believe in breeding. But that's neither here nor there. Your point is that they're both too young. I've said so, haven't I? We're at war, Lady Belden. And Vin's a flyer. That's no excuse for rushing into an ill-considered marriage. But in war, time's so precious to the young people. How old were you when you married? I? I know you're telling fibs because I looked you up. Oh, well, if you've looked me up, I suppose you know that I was 16. 16? And did your parents approve? That's beside the point. Oh, forgive me. Is it? You married very young and without your parents' consent, and yet when Carol... Oh, but perhaps you regretted it. I did nothing of the kind. Well, then, why... My marriage only lasted a few weeks. My husband was in the army. He was killed in action. Oh, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. I didn't know. I never regretted it. Not for one moment. We married because we knew that might happen. But I don't want Carol to suffer as I suffered. Don't you want her to be happy, even for a little while, the way you were? I was afraid you'd say that. Not that it matters what you say, or what I say either. You know that, don't you? You mean Carol will go her own way? She's my granddaughter. Well, then why? Goodness knows. I was beaten before I started. You don't mind terribly, do you? 
He is a nice boy. Yes. I see now where he gets it. You're pretty too. No wonder that wretched Ballard named his rose after you. Not that he's got a chance of getting the cup from me. Well, so long as we're going to be relatives, the least you can do is to offer me some tea. I, I really like that scene because uh, basically Lady Belden kind of gives in. And that was the turning point for me where I started liking yes, her. Yes, I, I agree. And this will be my last reference to Downton Abbey. But I have a feeling that Lady Belden was good friends with the Dowager woman on Downton Abbey. Because <laughs> yeah. they, 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 they have the same demeanor. My next favorite scene, I, I hope I'm still in sequence here, is when Kay and Clem and their children and pets are in the bomb shelter. Yeah, that was that, that was That takes scary. place from the beginning, and they're kind of settling in, and the kids are going to sleep. And then it did, just intensifies as the bombs are falling closer and closer. Their home is being ruined and destroyed. That says everything about the Blitz in London to me and what it must have been like for millions of people who had to withstand that bombing. My note on that scene was that the little kids slept through most of like the, the, the bombing and the, the sounds of the gunfire and the, the shelling. And it wasn't until the bombs actually landed in their backyard that they, they woke up. So the, that they had just gotten used to you know, sleeping through that. And that was both really powerful and, and really sad at the same time. Totally so. And my other comment in that scene was that uh, Clem went outside to smoke his pipe, but the pipe was turned upside down because he didn't want any pilots to see the, the flare right. of his uh, tobacco. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that He either. was a talented man. And he says... To, he says to uh, to uh, Kay... Fine barrage tonight, isn't it? Gets better each time. <laughs> sort of like... Look at the... It's a beautiful evening. The, the moon's out. It's uh, The the stars are shining. And what a wonderful barrage we're yes. having. But, I mean, I think he was just trying to break the, the tension a little bit. But it was it's it was a great funny. scene. Uh, what comes up next for you? It's the scene where Carol and Kay have their exchange about let's be real... You're happy. Of course. I've had a lifetime of happiness in these last two weeks. But, Carol, that's only the beginning. Kay, I'm not afraid to face the truth. Are you? No. I love him, but I know... I know that I may lose him. He's young and he loves life, but he may die. Let me say it. 
He may be killed any day, any hour. Well, you must have faced that in your mind. Yes, I faced it. Then you know that every moment is precious. We mustn't waste time in fear. Okay, you won't hate me for saying this, will you? No, Carol. I will be very happy. Every moment that I have him. Every moment. If I must lose him, there'll be time enough for tears. There'll be a lifetime for tears. Well, that's right, isn't it? And, and I just thought that that scene, that, that moment between the two of them was so touching and so well done and, and, and real. I, I'll probably just remember that for the rest of my life, that, that scene in the movie was just really well done. That that was my next one, so um, I may be jumping ahead a little bit. I I love the scene where they have the festival for the ceremony to judge the flowers. That whole, yeah, that whole setup, <laughs> and uh, how I guess every year that they'd had this event, Lady Belden had won the uh, famous rose uh, certificate. Uh, obviously, not because she was, you know, the uh, <laughs> the, the royal. Not because she had the best rose, <laughs> no. I don't think. <laughs> uh, but I, I again, this is further evidence that she's changing. Because they're doing the uh, award, and once again they think that she's going to win it, and she turns around and, and doesn't. She gives it to the station master. Get close, just a minute. How did that paper from the judges on the Rose Award? We want to get through with this. Judges are still debating, milady. What? Whatever for? Ridiculous creatures. Go and tell them I want that decision at once. Yes, yes milady. Have you seen old Bella's rose? No, I haven't. That's a lie. I looked it over the moment it arrived. Well? It's a good rose. Is it better than yours? That young man, the judges will decide. You should worry, you'll get the cup. Are you insinuating that judges are corrupt? I'm insinuating they're scared of you. Oh, rubbish. I'm scared. <laughs> the decision on the rose of all the lady. Well, Mr. Vincent Miniver, take a look at that. Congratulations. Well, I'm not a bit surprised. Set yourself up to know more than the judges, eh? This guided young man. Can't think what you see in him, Carol. <laughs> this is really important to you, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's stupid of me, but, but there it is. I've won that cup for as long as I can remember. Mr. Barrett's terribly keen, too. Well, he's had his chance, hasn't he? You've such a way of looking at people. What do you expect me to do about it? Reverse the judge's decision? I would put it past you. If you happen to disagree with it. But I don't. Your ladyship make the award now. Certainly. Award. It's your unprejudiced decision. Why? Certainly, ladies. 
Of course, my lady. Won't you sit down? Sit down. My friends of Bellum, it is once again my pleasure to present the annual awards for the best flowers grown in our community. The first prize, chrysanthemums. First prize, Miss Alice Lundin. Congratulations. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I come to the final award. The Challenge Cup, given for the best rose. The best rose grown in the village during the past year. The first prize, the silver cup, goes to... ...goes to Mr. James Ballard, our popular station master. Henry or Henry Travers, who'd spent his life, it made his life that he had won this award. He was so flabbergasted that he couldn't even get I out know, of his seat. They, they had, had to, to lift him up out of his seat and thrust him into the aisle to go accept this award. And What a terrific uh, job. When he shakes, when he, when he shakes uh, Lady Belden's hand, he says, pardon my indiscretion. I mean, they're so ingrained into this caste culture, you know, that even shaking her hand for him was was something that you just don't do. And uh, to me, this was the completion of her character arc in the movie because um, she says to uh, Kay Miniver, you have such a way of looking at me. And, you know, this, this relationship that had, gen- you know, grown between the two of them had come to a point where I think Lady Belden just respected Kay so much that she realized that, you know, the right thing to do here is to give the award to, to Henry. And she did it. And I was, and I think, I think everybody knew that she did it because they, they cheered for her louder than for him. Yes. Oh that? yes. Very much so. Cause it was such a big step for her. I also like the singing that was going on.
like you don't hear those kind of songs nowadays. I'll tell you. And and the look <laughs> on uh, Vin's face, he was enjoying he was, it so yep. much. And the little kids, the little kids sitting in the front row, there was about uh, you know f- they were about four or five deep, and they were all really enjoying it. And it was in the middle of this terrible war, and you know these nightly bombings. They carry on and have this rose comp this flower competition and and everybody's really enjoying themselves. And then it has to be concluded rapidly because another air raid is is about to descend upon them and they scurry around and she uh Lady Belden is ushering people into her I think it's her uh mansion. Her mansion. And Vin has to go off and and he has to rush to the Oh right, he has uh, he has to airfield, rush to the airfield right? and, and so it's just Kay and Carol in the car, and it's getting pretty oh, close to nighttime. Yes, right? it, it is, and they're quite a ways from home. And I, and I noticed that on their headlights, they had these special covers, like these louvered covers that they could uh, possibly still use the headlights if they needed to and not shine too bright of a light. But they have to drive really, really slow on the way back home because they don't have their lights on because this bombing is going I remember on. when I watched this part of the movie the, for the first time when I saw the movie a long time ago, probably in the theater in Montana. This, The next part of this movie was such a shock to me that here I'm thinking that Vin is going to be killed in action and something else is going to happen to Clem. And it's these two women going home that that get in the line of fire for the attack from the German aircraft, and uh, they strafe or shell the car. And uh, well, I'll let you tell the rest of it because I'm going to get emotional now. Even it was such a shock to me. It was so unexpected because up until this point, I mean, we're literally like. 10 minutes away from the end of the movie. And this is a long movie. It's over two hours long. And you think that all they need to do is get home. And Kay is doing her best to drive basically in the dark. Maybe the only light that she has is when the shells are going off in the distance. And she finally decides that they, they're not going to be able to make it home. They They better just stop. And unfortunately, they stop, but then the fighting starts happening right over where they've parked, you know, kind of along the road in this grove of trees. A plane that crashes right, I mean, it literally flies right over their car and crashes in the field right beyond. And then a couple more fighter planes are dueling it out right above the trees. And and I I don't think that they were necessarily trying to shoot the car, but I think they just happen to be in the yeah. wrong place at the wrong time. And what's so tragic about that is that if they just kept going, they would have been okay, I think. But they, I mean, I think she, Kay did what she thought was the right thing by stopping, but it ended up being wrong place, wrong time. And Carol gets shot and ends up, uh, they do get back to the house and she ends up dying in the house. What's what's so sad, and I, I just felt so bad for Kay is that she gets back to the house and, and calls up uh, the ambulance and the emergency services. And, of course, I mean, all of the ambulances are out because there's a lot of people dying and a lot of people that have been calling in for help. And Emergency? Ambulance at once. 
All out? But this is terribly urgent. So is this an air raid casualty? It's terribly... Well, the moment you get one in, the first possible moment, send it to Starlings. No, Starlings. Yes, the last house in Norton Lane. Yes, and hurry, please, hurry. They can't get to to the house in time, and it, it, it was a shock. I mean, it was. I did not expect that. I didn't either the first time I saw it, and then the follow-up to that is when when Carol's husband, Vin, comes back and and learns that Carol is dead, that whole scene, uh, again, just reinforces the tragedy of, of the war. And I mean, that was, re- that was being replicated in hundreds of thousands of homes. So to, to talk a little bit more about the directing um, and the cinematography, the scene that I mentioned earlier where Carol and Kay were standing at the bottom of the stairs and, and Vin had gone into his room to get his bag and there was a empty space at the top of the stairs between them is echoed in this scene because uh, Clem and Kay are standing at the bottom of the stairs. Vin goes into his room again, but this time it's to see his dead wife and there's an empty space at the top of the stairs and it, it, it just reinforces again. Now, that loss, that sense of loss, and, and, you know, she's gone. And that, that again, I mean, the directing in this movie is just outstanding, and the acting, and the cinematography, the script, everything. And then we, we fade out of that tragedy, and it reappears as they're starting to uh, get situated inside the church, which is which has had its roof blown off. And you can see the sky out through the back part of the church. And people are coming in and getting situated. And Lady Belden comes in. And she ends up being alone in her own little... She had her own box at the church. With, with her, her name? Yeah, I mean, that's, Lady that's like today you go to a... You go to a sports venue and they've got luxury suites. She had her own luxury suite at the church. And she's all alone. I mean, it looked like, I mean, she, it was it was a wonder, it was a powerful scene because she was sitting there completely <clears throat> alone in this box. And Vin comes up, he's seated, he's seated on the other side and he gets up and he comes over and gets, opens the door to her area and comes and sits by her. Another. Yeah, that was so powerful. And you know that kind of, that kind of completed Vin's journey in the movie because he had started his journey completely opposed to you know this caste system that had been in place in England for a thousand years. By the end of it, he just sees Lady Belden as as his mother-in-law, you know, or his grandmother-in-law. But he he goes to stand by her, and and the look of gratitude and relief on her face was just priceless. Uh, and and the look of pride on his parents, uh, you know, Clem and Kay's face of like, you know, we've we've raised a good son here. We've raised a good person and, and we're proud of him. And then the uh the minister or pastor does another uh fabulous the speech. homes of many of us have been destroyed and the lives of young and old have been taken. 
There's scarcely a household that hasn't been struck to the heart. And why? Surely you must have asked yourselves this question. Why, in all conscience, should these be the ones to suffer? Children, old people, a young girl at the height of her loveliness. Why these? Are these our soldiers? Are these our fighters? Why should they be sacrificed? I shall tell you why. Because this is not only a war of soldiers in uniform. It is a war of the people, of all the people. And it must be fought not only on the battlefield, but in the cities and in the villages, in the factories and on the farms, in the home and in the heart of every man, woman, and child who loves freedom. Well, we have buried our dead, but we shall not forget them. Instead, they will inspire us with an unbreakable determination to free ourselves and those who come after us from the tyranny and terror that threaten to strike us down. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. The, the, speech, the speech was so fabulous, in fact, that it was printed out and distributed all across Europe and the United States. It was printed in Time magazine. I mean, it, it was used as a, as a speech to get people motivated and, and roused about the war and why we were fighting the war. Not only that, but uh, the actor, Henry Wilcoxon, helped write it he wrote part of that speech oh my i didn't know that wow that's why it's called the will coxon speech okay uh he was actually one of the writers of it so um without a doubt without a doubt this is this is the top 10 out of 10 movie of maybe in fact of all the movies we've done so far this may be the best of the best to me it's so funny because i i know the name mrs miniver I, just for some reason, it's just sort of out there in the in the ether. Uh, but I've never watched the movie, and I didn't know anything about it. And honestly, I didn't even really know who Greer Garson was. Of course, I knew Walter Pigeon. He was Morbius from oh, Forbidden yes. Planet. Yes. And it took me a few minutes to get Morbius out of my head <laughs> while I was watching this movie. But now, now he's Clem slash Morbius to me. Uh, but yeah, this this I totally agree with you. Absolute ten out of ten, highest recommendation. I'll probably just go watch it again right now because it was so good. It is. My daughter walked in as I was finishing, and I said, "This is an amazing movie. This is a ten out of a ten. And she goes, "Well, it must be really." And, good. and the thing about it is, it unfolds in a natural, like it's really something that happened. There's no. There's nothing about it that seems false or fake or anything like that. Well, what I loved about it so much was that I guess that my favorite favorite part of the whole movie 
was the relationship between Kay and Clint. Yes. And there was never a time in the movie where I felt like it was a false note or that he did something that betrayed her or that he be- that she betrayed him. It was like they loved each other. They were in it together. They were there for each other. They were doing their best. It was, it was like, idealized or not, that, that was just my favorite part of the movie was their relationship. I don't have any one favorite. I just loved all of it. And I like everything else, too. So. Well, uh, our next... It's going to be hard to talk this week, one. Next week, we uh, are going to do a movie that neither Matt nor I have seen before. came out in, I think, 1960. It's Virgin Spring by uh, an excellent uh, Swedish director and writer and producer, uh, Ingemar Bergman. And I've I've read about it, but I've never seen it. So we'll have to brush up on our Swedish to uh, to get get through that. Dude, let's just read a little synopsis here of this movie because I think I started watching it uh, the other night, and I, I I watched like 15 minutes of it just to say, are we on the right track here? Is this going to be like a good movie? And within 10 minutes, I was like, yeah, gonna be this is going to be a good movie. So here's the synopsis on IMDb. A kind but pampered, beautiful young virgin and her family's pregnant and jealous servant set out to, del- to deliver candles to church, but only one returns from events that transpire in the woods along the way. And I guess it's kind of a revenge story in a way because something happens along the way from home to the church. It's not good. And uh, there's some revenge that happens. So one of my favorite actors, I just love him so much, is Max von oh, Sydow. Yes. And uh, he's he's great, as usual, in this movie. I so. think he might still be uh, acting. He's yeah, still I think, alive. I think he might yeah. still be. He's like uh, some of the other people that are in their 80s now that are still acting. There's a woman. Oh, my gosh. He's in the new Star, he's in the new Star Wars movie. Oh, my gosh. He's in the new Star Wars there's movie. A new, there's a woman at the uh, fund who's 102. She still gets acting jobs. She was in a couple of commercials, I guess, that played at the, during the Super Bowl. I see her around there all oh the time. Gosh. 102. Oh, that's awesome. So, The other movie that I like that Ingemar Bergman uh, directed and Max von Sydow was in was The Seventh Seal. And he's playing chess with death. And... Uh, I don't know if we'll ever review that one, but it's uh, it's it's really well done. Uh, so our Swedish heritage will will emerge, be coming out in this uh, in this movie. Next you week. betcha. <laughs> uh, well, uh, I guess we should wrap it up. This is Bob Johnson from Los Angeles, and uh, this is Matt Johnson from Seattle, and we're wishing you a great week of movie watching. Thanks for listening, everybody.